Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We turn again to the book of Acts, and we're turning to Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. It's a beautiful day, and it's lovely to see you in the Lord's house in such uh, lovely warm weather. It'd be a great temptation to sit in the garden on a fine evening like that. But it's good to see you gathered together. It's something we look forward to. I know that uh, every week I was thinking on the way up, you know, um, coming to the Lord's Day evening and sharing fellowship with you is really something that I look forward to every week. Uh, and I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad that we're gathered around the Word of God. That's uh, something that many, not many people in this very dark world will be doing this evening. So we read from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, And said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though, although he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all the face of the earth, and have determined the times beforehand and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. I bade certain men clave unto him, and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. So Paul has been 
preaching to the learned men of the Areopagus in Athens. And up to now, as we've noticed over the past couple of weeks, he has taught them some very fundamental truths. He has taught them about God, the God whom they have admitted they did not know. And he has taught them some fundamental truths about mankind. Uh, He has done that in a very nuanced way. He has approached them as philosophers on terms that they would understand. He's speaking to them at their level. That should work, shouldn't it? So he he compliments them on their religious fervor. And he speaks to them about their city and its culture. And he mentions that he has done all the tourist things. He's looked at the various statues and temples and the beauties of the great city of Athens. And he's made reference to their literature and their poets and their ancient epic stories. And all through this address so far, he has held the attention of the audience. He has even aroused their interest. But sooner or later, every sermon has to come to an application, a challenge. So Paul starts with where they are at, and then he introduces the gospel. Paul's mission, of course, is not to excite their interest with some new philosophy. It's to win them for Christ. So he must make a gospel application. Now, how will that go down with the philosophy students in the Areopagus in Athens? Let me give you a hint. Years ago, when I was studying for the ministry, I I did a module in Christian ethics. And part of that module, I was required to know a little bit about moral philosophy. It was all so vague and imprecise that it was really difficult to actually get your head around writing an essay on that subject. But I managed, um, and a friend who was a teacher helped me. He said to me, whenever you write a philosophy essay, apart from the standard structure of any essay, which is to tell the people what you're going to tell them, and then tell them it, and then just tell them what you've told them, that's the structure of every sermon as well, He said, when you're writing a philosophy essay, make sure that you don't ever give them any answers because they don't want any. What they want is questions. Lots and lots and lots of questions. But don't give them any answers. They won't mark you well for that. Now, the Stoics and the Epicureans have had the lesson. But they are going to get given the answers. And they're not going to like it. Paul's going to point them to the one who is the answer. And he's got to do it. And he's got to do it now. So the application and the response is what we want to see this evening. We want to see Paul's application. Three reasons to repent. And we want to see the response, three reactions to the mention of the resurrection of Jesus. So just two points. Three reasons to repent. Three responses, three reactions to the resurrection. Let's look at the text together. We have here Paul's call to action. 
his application of his sermon. He has laid out the truth about God and about mankind. He's spoken about the Creator who made the world, who sustains it. He's spoken about mankind equal before God in our sins, and yet with a God-given desire built into us to seek the one who created us, the one who we do not know, which leaves mankind groping around in the darkness of their own sinful blindness. And now Paul's going to join the dots. He must seek a response. It is time to seek the Lord. And of course, whenever we make a gospel application, as we always have done for centuries, that application is a call to repentance. He gives three reasons. The first reason to repent is found in verse 29. Because God has been very patient with us. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, and we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device, and the times of this ignorance God winked at. The language is a bit archaic to some extent. But it simply means that God has tolerated, forborn with us. He has been patient with us. We have been testing him with our idolatry. Athens was totally dedicated to idols. They were statues. They were temples. They were images. But let's be honest, anything that occupies the place in my life Anything that takes the place of God in my life is an idol. That applies to everything. What comes first in my thoughts? If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, it's an idol. My time, my finances, my occupation my leisure. If there's anything in life that's more important than the Lord Jesus Christ, I tell you that's an idol. And yet God in his mercy has not rained down his wrath upon us. Think of the state of the world in the days of Noah when God looked down upon humanity and saw that everything that they did was only evil all day long. Genesis chapter five, chapter six and verse five. God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, that every imagination of his thoughts, uh, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. How gracious has God been to these Athenians with their ten thousand idols? Didn't they deserve his wrath? What of us? How much do we deserve the wrath of God? We've flown in the face of God, even here in Northern Ireland, even as we speak this very week. Somebody called Deirdre Hargy, Sinn Féin MLA, is busy in her office with her officials drafting legislation that will bring about a victimization of the gospel message. 
a woman, a godless woman, plotting and planning to outlaw what she calls conversion therapy. She's trying to make it as inclusive as she can by making it so vague that no one will know what it takes in. Christian Institute this week, I'm sure you read it, issued a little letter or an email. They've had a barrister looking at the proposed legislation, a lawyer, and the lawyer has examined it and he has said this is drastic legislation. If this goes through the the assembly, this legislation will outlaw conversion preaching. It will outlaw gospel preaching of certain passages. It will outlaw telling the truth. It will outlaw private prayer with individuals who are concerned about their soul's salvation. There's a woman sitting in Stormont drafting legislation to try to stop us telling sinners that they need to be saved. They say that a man or a woman can't change their sexuality. They probably can't because they're sinners and they don't want to. They don't even know that they need to repent. But you see, the thing is that God can change it. And God doesn't change people's sinful lives by therapy. He changes it by conversion. He changes it by the new birth. He changes it by regeneration. How on earth are they going to pass a law to stop the Holy Spirit converting sinners? But that's what they plan to do. What foolishness. Wicked men and women shaking their fists at the very God who created them. And yet God in his mercy is giving us time to repent. Let's not waste that time. The first reason that we must repent is because God has been very patient with us. The second reason is because God has commanded us to repent. Verse 29, verse 30 again. Verse 30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now, there's a change, do you see? The but, but now, right now, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. See the use of the word now, it's a critical command. There's been a change. God has been very gracious with these people. The very fact that we've got to this stage in our lives and we haven't perished and fallen under God's judgment is because of God's mercy and grace. God has been gracious with people who've been living in darkness. But now God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. These Greeks that Paul was talking to were living in absolute darkness. 
They didn't have the historical knowledge of the Jews. They had no knowledge of the law of God. They had no understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system pointing to Christ. They had no knowledge of the covenants God made with his people. But now, now something is different. Now God has sent his own son into the world. The one who is the light of the world has come. And in the blazing light of Christ, there is a command, a universal call, which goes to every man and woman and boy and girl in this province and in this world who is drawing breath today. God commands you to repent of your sins. And you can't ever say it's not for me. What's the nature of a command? Command is very militaristic language, isn't it? Command is an order. An order that you must obey. I was used to taking orders when I was in the RUC. Back in the 70s and 80s, you just got told what to do and you did it. And if you didn't do it, dear help you. I remember one Friday evening, three o'clock in the morning, standing in the freezing cold and the rain, howling off the sea, trying to find a wee tiny bit of shelter in a doorway, in a deserted street. And the next thing, a car pulled up, and the sergeant stepped out. Take what I got. I got the abuse of my life for standing in a doorway when there was nobody else about but me. I was not employed. I was not ordered to stand in a doorway. I was ordered to be on the beat. I was ordered to walk, to observe, to watch. I was given an order. I disobeyed the order by seeking shelter. And I must pay the price. I think we had a name for that in the police, which I couldn't repeat here. An order is an imperative. A command is something you must obey. And if you don't obey the command, you are punished for not obeying the command. And God is now commanding every man everywhere to repent. And to refuse to repent is to disobey a direct order from your creator that brings with it the punishment that is due to disobedience. Reason three. The third reason to repent. Reason one. Because God has been very patient with us. Reason two. Because it is now an imperative that we do so. We are, we are commanded to repent. Reason three. Because very soon a day will come when if we have not repented we will very much regret that. We will be sorry. Look again at verse 31. Now the wording of this verse is very significant. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. 
There's a compelling reason to repent while we still have time. Psalm 98 and verse 9 says, Before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. There's an appointed day. He hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Verse 31. There's a day when this world will come crashing to a sudden and unexpected end. I'm sure most of you have listened to that CD that I gave out a few weeks ago on the new heavens and the new earth. I was going to call it bad news for Greta. Because the climate change people won't stop the end of the world. Despite all the best efforts of the climate change fanatics and the unrepentant mass of humanity, there will be a day when we will be required to stand before God and our lives will be measured to see how far short we fall. And here is the problem. The standard that we will be measured against that day is an absolute standard. He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now I've got bad news for you. When he comes to judge the world against the righteousness of the man he's going to be ordained, who has been ordained, that man's not going to be you or me. For my righteousness and your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. I know that many people say, on that day they'll say, I'm a good person. I've never hurt anyone. I've never owed anyone money. I've paid all my debts. In fact, on the whole, I'm probably a better human being than that Christian over there. I worked with a man called Jack. Back in the 70s, he was without doubt a very good and a very generous man. One of the decentest men actually I've ever met. I liked him. I admired him. I benefited very greatly from his friendship. And when he left to go on and enjoy his well-earned retirement, I really missed him, missed his company. He had a great record. He had served his country. During the Second World War, he had been a rear gunner in the RAF in a Lancaster bomber. And he had taken shrapnel in his knee and he walked with a limp. I tell you, Jack was a decent, honest, kind-hearted, likeable man. Now, when I spoke to him about salvation, he went totally out of character. I'm as good as you. I'm better than you, actually. I go to my church, he did. I do my work. I work harder than you, he did. I'm honest, so he was. Measured against me, he was measuring himself against me because I was the one who was witnessing to him. And by all accounts, he was as good a person, if not a better person than I was. But then I'm not the standard by which God is going to judge him. God has already ordained a man and he's going to be measured against the only man who never sinned at all. The only man who perfectly kept and fulfilled God's law. 
the only man who could atone for our sins. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter gives an account of the sinlessness of Christ. He says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that he should follow his steps. Listen, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. That's the standard. A day is appointed. A day when we will be measured and our righteousness will not be measured against the kindest, most decent human being that ever walked, but will be measured against God's Son who did no sin, who never did sin, who had no guile found in his mouth. Such a man among the masses of humanity has never been found apart from Christ. And because God has done that, he gives us an assurance that this is definitely going to happen. That there will be a day coming when we, if we have not repented, will have to give an account before a God whom we have offended. And he says then, in verse 31, By that man in whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. There it is. God has given a guarantee. Be in no doubt, this is going to happen. And you know it's going to happen because God has raised his son, Jesus, from the dead. And one of the effects of that resurrection is to make a guarantee to every one of us that the Lord Jesus is going to return and judge the world. So the message to the Athenians is, repent while you still have time. That message hasn't changed. Repent because we're sinners. Repent now because up till now, God has been very gracious with each one of us. Repent now because it is a direct empirical command from God that cannot be disobeyed. You must repent. Repent of your sins. And if you don't repent, it is disobedience. And disobedience must be punished. Repent now because a day will come when you will explain before Almighty God as you stand in the shadow of his sinless, spotless Son, you will explain to Almighty God why you did not come to Christ to accept his sacrificial work on the cross for your sins. In the last two or three minutes of our meeting, three reactions to Paul's sermon. Look at verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, we pause there. The Greeks weren't interested in a resurrection. Remember back when Paul was talking in the marketplace just earlier in this chapter and earlier in this month when we were talking about it. I reminded you that he'd been talking about Jesus and the resurrection. and They had thought he was talking about how Jesus, Kaihe Anastasia, the the a man and a woman, 
Anastasia, a female name. Um, and they thought he was talking about God and a goddess, different gods. And that's why they brought him to the, to the Areopagus. Back in verse 18, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he ple- preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was talking about two gods. But now he's absolutely clear. The truth has finally sunk in. Paul is speaking to people here who broadly belong to two schools of philosophy, Epicureans and Stoics. But there was a common thread that ran through all of Greek philosophy. Both of them, the majority of Greeks, believed in what's called spirit matter dualism. They believed that anything spiritual inside you was good and anything outside you, anything that you could touch your body was bad. So the Greeks had no place in the afterlife for a body. No place whatsoever. For the Stoic, your future was to be absorbed into God, to be a part of the universe, a bit like New Age thinking. For the Epicureans, you're wanting your best life now, a bit like Joel Osteen's thinking. So in the Agora, Paul had preached about Jesus and the resurrection, but right now he's changed that. He's speaking about Jesus, a man who bodily rose from the dead. Anastasis auton Achnechron, a man risen from the dead. Now that closed down the meeting right there. At that point, the Greeks wanted to hear no more. Look at how it works. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, Oh, we'll hear you again sometime. And others responded. Three predictable reactions. There were the predictable mockers. The people who always mock the Christian and mock the gospel and mock the Lord Jesus. After all, when Jesus talked about his arrest and trial and conviction in Luke 18 and verse 31, he said, Behold, we go to Jerusalem All things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully treated and spitted on. Soldiers did it. They scourged him and they plaited a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they mocked him. wonder is that what Paul had in mind when he wrote in Galatians do not be deceived God is not mocked whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap predictable predictable mockers procrastinating delayers like King Agrippa who thought well we leave off this subject for another day we'll hear you the next time you come that says verse 32 we will hear thee again of this matter but Paul never returned as far as we know to Athens they never heard him again and the persuaded believers only a handful Verse 34. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, and among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman called Damaris, and others with them.
Don't know how many of the others were. It was plural, so there must have been at least two of them. Demetrius Dionysius, rather, the Areopagite, would have been a high-bred member of society. There were only 30 members of the Areopagus. They were the top cream of Athenian society. One of them came to Christ that day. And a woman. Oh, we know she called Damaris. Don't know anything about her. One of the commentators, maybe more than one, thought that there was a possibility because Paul has only preached in two places in Athens, hasn't he? He's preached in the council, the Areopagus, and he's preached in the marketplace. And in Greek society, a decent woman wouldn't be in the marketplace. It's not the market like you have in Bangor on a Wednesday afternoon or St George's Market in Belfast. Marketplace was a place that women didn't go. Men went there. What was a woman doing in the marketplace? The only woman who'd be in the marketplace would be a woman of ill repute. So what's the Lord done? He's saved from the highest to the lowest of society once again. All the barriers are broken down. People come to Christ from all strata of society. A man and a woman, a high-born person and a low, low life from the dregs of the streets and others. You know, there's no record of a church being founded in Athens as there was in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And that has left some people to think that perhaps Paul's approach, his experimental approach in this, in this town was not appreciated. And he very quickly dropped it. He has preached the gospel. He has made a direct application. But the approach was to start with where the Athenians were. To start with their, what we might call nowadays in modern Christianity, their felt needs. They wanted philosophy and they wanted poetry. And Paul skillfully gave them what they wanted and drew it into a gospel conclusion. But as we'll see next month, when he went to Corinth, he recalled writing in 1 Corinthians, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no talk in Corinthians about Greek poets or philosophy. Paul simply preached Christ and him crucified. But we'll look at that, God willing, next month.